We're living in one of the most polarizing eras in human history. People seem to be radically opposed to one another on a variety of issues in a way we've never seen before. One of them is the issue of transgenderism. Veronica Tugaleva said, to know yourself, you must sacrifice the illusion that you already do. Welcome to the Vanessa Landino podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. You know, I've had it in mind to do a podcast on this issue for a while, but I didn't know how to approach it. I have my own opinions, I have my own beliefs, but I also bear the weight and the responsibility of my profession, and that is to see things as objectively as possible, to look at issues without judgment, to be curious about the human experience and the human condition. And so I want to say, before we dive into this issue, I know how polarizing it is. And I know that we're pretty divided as a nation on this, to be honest. It's in our faces constantly, this issue, this debate, and it probably needs to be for a number of reasons. However, I want to approach this today with you gently, with curiosity, and with as much objectivity as I can. I do come at this as a psychotherapist. What does that mean? For me, it means that I'm concerned with the human condition and I am drawn to pain. I'm drawn to human pain and trying to figure it out, understand it, mine it, process it, and you know, draw the diamonds out of the coal mine. That's really my work as a therapist is to find purpose and a path in pain, people's pain. So there's a lot of pain that we're going to talk about today. There's the pain of the families. There's the pain of the individuals who are experiencing gender dysphoria. We're going to get into all of that. But if nothing else, before I start, I want you to hear me say, let's talk about this with one another on this podcast and our families and our friends and our churches. Let's talk about this gently because there's pain involved. All right. Why am I even talking about this in general? Because it's all around us. This issue is all around us. It's a big question. It opens up larger questions about humanity and identity, and it is a worthy topic. You know, the Pew Research Center estimates or measured that about 1.6% of adults identify as trans or non-binary. And you might say, well, Vanessa, that's a minuscule amount of people, 1.6%. That's like one and a half people out of 100, right? But... This issue is affecting all of us because they also found that 4 in 10 people, 44%, say they personally know someone who's trans or non-binary, 20% know someone who's non-binary. And that number's been creeping up, 37% in 2017, 42% in 2021, and now 44% in 2022. So this is part of our society. This issue is central to a lot of the discussions we're having, particularly around an election season where people are taking very polarized positions and quite frankly, in my estimate, with zero compassion for one another. That's just my own observation of this. So let's talk about what the issue is and how therapeutically we might approach it in a way that is both gentle and hopefully healing. Okay, so there's three presentations of gender dysphoria. Two of them are more traditional and then the third one is a little bit more modern, okay? The first is early onset. The second is late onset. I'll talk about the third afterwards. Early onset gender dysphoria is manifested in early childhood, and it occurs in equal numbers of boys and girls. This is what the studies show us. And what does it mean? It means that the child is showing a strong interest in opposite sex clothing, toys, behaviors, play. They want to play with the opposite sex children when during early childhood, it is far more normal to children to play with the same sex child. Okay, so they might even say if they're a biological boy, I'm a girl. If they're a biological girl, I'm a boy. They're sort of really identifying with the other gender. What do we mean by that? The other stereotypes, the other presentation, the other gender expression. Late onset just means that it occurs at puberty or later. And in many cases, the individual will report that they always had gender dysphoria. They're only now sort of owning it or acknowledging it or talking about it. And they've been resisting the urge. And then adolescence comes and those feelings develop into stronger gender dysphoria. And that's sort of when we see it come out, the symptoms come out, because that's when the person is talking about it. Okay. Almost all cases of late onset gender dysphoria involve people who are born biological males. So that's a difference. Early onset is equal numbers of boys and girls. And children are very fluid. You know, you might have a little boy who's like, I want to put on a dress. You know, a little girl who's like, I want to play with trucks. I mean, it's a very fluid thing. 
gender dysphoria goes further, okay, it's not just play, but it's an actual identification with the other gender, and then a feeling of, and we're going to talk about what dysphoria means, a feeling of dissatisfaction or unease when one is identified by their own biological sex, okay? Late onset, mostly boys. Then in the last... I would say seven to nine years, we've seen something that has been coined rapid onset gender dysphoria. And this is not a term you're going to find in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Okay, this is something that was developed. This term was developed through research mostly by Lisa Littman. And I'm going to say more about that later. But rapid onset gender dysphoria typically refers to Caucasian females. This is the majority. This is not everybody. This is the majority. They're mostly white adolescent girls. There's no evidence of childhood dysphoria, no previous interest in or preference for things of the opposite gender. There's no expressed dissatisfaction with their gender. All signs and symptoms of distress occur around the time of puberty. And again, it's mostly white adolescent girls. Okay, so what does the data tell us about gender dysphoria? Because so much of this occurs in childhood. It's either early childhood, late childhood, or early adulthood, or rapid onset is adolescence, okay? All of this is pretty much childhood. Well, a 2016 meta-analysis demonstrated that between 65 and 94% of kids grow out of gender dysphoria, okay? So this means, and the term for that is desistance. The dysphoria desists. It goes away. We go from thinking I'm a boy or thinking I'm a girl and identifying with that and wanting to wear the clothes and express the gender in that way to just eventually sort of naturally accepting the gender that we are. And that may mean that personality traits are masculine and feminine. And I'm going to say a ton about that later. But that's typically what that means. Okay. 2018. This was a study that was published in the International Journal of Transgenderism led by Kenneth Zucker nearly 70% of childhood gender dysphoria resolves. So in 2016, the meta-analysis said that somewhere between 65 and 94, that's a pretty broad range, still well over half, but most kids outgrow this. And then in 2018, 70%. Okay, so kind of right in the middle, 70% of childhood gender dysphoria resolves itself. Okay, so what is dysphoria? Well, the word dysphoria, think opposite of euphoria. It's a state of unease or general dissatisfaction. So what is gender dysphoria? I'm going to read this straight out of the DSM. Okay, this is what the DSM-5 says gender dysphoria is. A marked incongruence between one's experienced or expressed gender and assigned gender of at least six months duration, so it has to be there for at least six months, as manifested by at least two or more of the following. A marked incongruence between one's experienced or expressed gender and primary or secondary sex characteristics. A strong desire to be rid of one's primary and or secondary sex characteristics because of a marked incongruence with one's experienced or expressed gender. A strong desire for the primary and or secondary sex characteristics of the other gender. A strong desire to be of the other gender or some alternative gender different from one's assigned gender, a strong desire to be treated as the other gender, a strong conviction that one has the typical feelings and reactions of the other gender. The condition is associated with clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Okay, so that's the definition of gender dysphoria. You don't want the parts you're born with. You desire the parts that the other gender is born with. You identify with the thoughts, the feelings, the psyche of the other gender. Okay, now, for most of psychological history, gender dysphoria was viewed in one of two ways. Okay, it was part of like a growth identity formation process, which the vast majority of children grew out of. Remember that 65 to 94 percent statistic, then 70 percent. Still, the vast majority of children just sort of outgrow that kind of thinking. So it was seen that way that this child may be dysphoric when they're, you know, six or seven or eight years old. But by the time they reach puberty, by the time they're 16, 17, 18, they're okay in the body that they're in. Second. It was a mental disorder, and that means a disordered set of thoughts or behaviors requiring treatment. Mental disorder would require mental therapeutic treatment, okay? Now, as of right now, there are definitive brain structures that will show whether a brain is a male or a female brain, okay? Now, I'm just going to read this is straight off the National Institute of Health, 
NIH.gov. This is straight off their website. All the links will be in the show notes. Quote, females had greater volume in the prefrontal cortex, orbitofrontal cortex, superior temporal cortex, lateral parietal cortex, and insula. Males, on average, had greater volume in the ventral temporal and occipital regions. Each of these regions is responsible for processing different types of information. Okay, so why is this relevant? Because the brains of males and females are actually different. They look different on an MRI. They look different on a brain scan. Different centers of the brain are larger or smaller in male and female animals and in male and female humans. Okay, this is from Northwestern Medicine's website. The title of the article is The Battle of the Brain, Men Versus Women. Although the male brain is 10% larger than the female brain, it does not impact intelligence. Despite the size difference, men's and women's brains are more alike than they are different. One area in which they do differ is the inferior parietal lobule, which tends to be larger in men. This part of the brain is linked with mathematical problems, estimating time and judging speed. There is evidence that women have more gray matter in their brains. Gray matter contains cell bodies that help our bodies process information in the brain and is located with regions of the brain that are involved with muscle control and sensory perception. That said, women have been found to use more white matter, which connects processing centers, while men use more gray matter. So women have more, but men use more of what they have. This could explain why men tend to excel at task-focused projects while women are more likely to excel at language and multitasking. But Vanessa, this sounds so stereotypical. Friends, I'm literally reading neuroscience off of a medical website. This is biology. It's anatomy. It's neurology. So whatever emotions we have about that, I just want us to be aware of them. Just notice the emotions you have. Now, you could say, yeah, but that's just one website. And it is. Yes. Again, these links are all going to be in the show notes, Northwestern Medicine. There are graphics on this article that show the differences between the male and the female brain. Why am I reading this? Because this has been a hot spot of research in the trans community and among those who are debating transgenderism. If someone is actually born in the wrong body, and the part of them that knows that they are the other gender, you would think that would be in the brain right? That's a thought. I am a woman. Even though I'm in a biologically male body, I am a woman. Or I'm a man. Even though I'm in a female body, I am a man. That would be the brain that would give you that thought, right? Then the brain should look different. But as of right now, there are no known proven neurological structures that would definitively prove that the brain of a trans person is that of the other sex, that science does not exist. It could emerge. We could find it. It's just that today it doesn't exist. Scientific American put out a study in 2016. Research out of Madrid, Spain in 2013 showed some interesting discoveries, okay? The researchers looked at the brains of trans people and compared them with cisgendered people. The principal researcher believes he could see differences in the brains of trans people that didn't look like male or female. He was noticing structures in the brain that didn't look male or female, but they were unique to trans brains. So here's the quote, and this is very interesting. Trans people have brains that are different from males and females, a unique kind of brain. His name is Guillamon, says. It is simplistic to say that a female-to-male transgender person is a female trapped in a male body. It is not because they have a male brain, but a transsexual brain. Okay, so he was looking at different brain structures. Of course, and this is how the quote ends, Behavior and experience shape brain anatomy, so it is impossible to say if these subtle differences are inborn. Are they part of the biology that makes a person trans? Maybe, but there's no way right now we can definitively study that because behavior and experience shape brain anatomy. Okay, so this is interesting. The structure of the brain between men and women, male and female, looks different. The structure of the trans brain may be different, but it's impossible to say if this is because of brain activity or inherent brain anatomy. So the science is not conclusive. You with me? Right now, gender dysphoria is in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but the field is split. Part of the field right now believes this is a medical condition, even though there's no definitive science to prove this. I'm just giving you a couple of, you know, 
quotes from articles in a podcast. I don't have time. We don't have time for me to give you everything. There's no way to do that. But there's so much research out there on both sides. There's just nothing definitive. Okay, you can't see it yet. You can't see it under a microscope. So we can't say, okay, this is medical because we can't do science that way. But that's exactly how people are treating it. They're treating it like it is a medical issue. And the medical treatment that's given to transgendered people follows what is called the Dutch protocol. Okay, now what is the Dutch protocol? It's the use of puberty blockers. These are drugs that you give children before puberty that holds off puberty. So a boy on puberty blockers will not develop a full-grown penis. Girls on puberty blockers will not menstruate. They're not going to have a normal period. They're not going to have breast development. It's all meant to slow and stop puberty, okay? Cross-sex hormones, this is the taking of estrogen and testosterone and or surgery, although people who get surgery have typically been on hormone therapy. Surgery, and that includes the removal of breasts, ovaries, uteruses, testes, and penises. Okay, so they're trying to remove everything that doesn't fit into the gender they believe they are. Now, the medical community is split on whether or not this is a good idea. So this is straight off the NHS. This is the National Health Service in the UK. This is right off their website. And they were known for years to be really forerunners in gender-affirming care. The Tavistock Clinic recently got shut down. But for years, that was the place to go in the UK for gender-affirming care. That's what they call it. Okay, so the National Health Service in the UK, quote, Little is known about the long-term side effects of hormone or puberty blockers in children with gender dysphoria. Although GIDS, which is the Gender Identity Development Service, although GIDS advises that this is a physically reversible treatment if stopped, it is not known what the psychological effects may be. It is also not known whether hormone blockers affect the development of the teenage brain or children's bones. Side effects may also include hot flashes, fatigue, and mood alterations. Essentially, what they're doing with girls is they're throwing them into an early menopause. That's why it affects their bones, because osteoporosis kind of sets in. It can. From the age of 16, teenagers who have been on hormone blockers for at least 12 months may be given cross-sex hormones, also known as gender-affirming hormones. These hormones cause some irreversible changes, such as breast development caused by taking estrogen, Deepening of the voice caused by taking testosterone. Long-term cross-sex hormone treatment may cause temporary or permanent infertility. There is some uncertainty about the risks of long-term cross-sex hormone treatment. End quote. Okay. Friends, this is why I'm addressing this today. Because these medical interventions, the consequences of these medical interventions are serious. This isn't like taking penicillin for a strep throat or Advil for a headache. These are hormone therapies meant to create and sustain irreversible changes to the bodies of those people who take them. That's the point. Many trans people undergo surgery, and surgery is permanent. So what do we do? We know that somewhere between 65 and 94% of childhood gender dysphoria resolves itself. Later, that number was changed to 70%, but that's still 7 out of 10 people. That's a lot of people who, if just left alone, this will resolve itself. Do we intervene and say, no, your gender dysphoria you're going to have for your whole life. You need this medical treatment. What do we do? As a psychotherapist, my concern is on the pain of the dysphoria. The dysphoric person is riddled with psychological, emotional, unwanted distress and discomfort, intrusive thoughts, and a permeating self-hatred for real and actual parts of their body. They literally don't want to be in the body they're in. They're in pain. They don't feel like they belong in their own skin. So just like the medical community, the psychotherapeutic field is split. Why? Because one, these are irreversible and possibly unwanted complicating changes to the human body. If someone desists, if they want to back this off, those changes are permanent. Psychotherapists are in the position of having to write affirming letters. It's part of the Protocol. You cannot get any of this treatment unless you are seen by a mental health professional who signs off on it. And we're confirming, this is what we're expected to do, we're supposed to confirm and affirm that teenagers who do not even have a fully formed prefrontal cortex, their brain is not fully formed, but we are supposed to say that teenagers are ready for this protocol. It's a really hard decision to make. This is a huge responsibility for a therapist. 
Especially because, and you'll read this online, most of those affirming appointments happen in an hour. How could I possibly know if someone is ready for this level of medical care? They're going to be a medical patient for the rest of their life. You have to be on hormone therapy for the rest of your life to keep those changes. Some of them are irreversible, yes, but you have to stay on it. How am I supposed to write a letter in 50 minutes, a 50-minute session, right? So this is why the field is split. Therapists are having a hard time with it. The second part of it is that people change their minds. And the name for them nowadays is detransitioners. So even if they transition, okay, let's say it doesn't just normally naturally desist. The gender dysphoria resolves itself. No, they actually go into transition. They take the hormones. They have the surgery. And then they change their minds. They're called detransitioners. And what that basically means is they want their old body back. They want to reverse the process as much as they can. Now, this shift, this detransition has been studied. Lisa Lippman studied this. The same woman who coined the phrase rapid onset gender dysphoria studied detransition. She's conducted a study of 100 people, and she's done more than that. But this study looked at 100 people who detransitioned. And the percentages of why they detransitioned are reported as follows. And what you're going to notice is that the numbers don't add up to 100% because a lot of these people, there's overlap. They detransitioned for a few reasons, okay? 60% reported that they had become more comfortable identifying as their birth sex. So in other words, the dysphoria desisted. This is the highest percentage. This is 6 out of 10 people. It's congruent with what we historically know about gender dysphoria. Most cases desist. Okay, 49% marked concerns about medical complications, particularly regarding hormone replacement therapy, so taking estrogen or testosterone. These folks didn't want the changes they're experiencing, the deepened voice for girls, the breast development for boys. They just, the the medical complications of surgery can also be long lasting. A lot of people who get bottom surgery, there's ongoing complications and infections. It's not a clean process. This is still very new science. So 49% detransitioned took on the gender of the sex they were identified with as bir- at birth, they took that back. Okay, 38% noted that transitioning hadn't resolved their psychological issues. So they concluded that gender dysphoria wasn't the cause. Now, this is where the mental health community needs to really pay attention. Because this is where the therapists and the mental health professionals failed them. And I'm going to say that very clearly. We failed them by automatically affirming when there were other issues going on, issues that likely because of the influence of social media were interpreted to be gender dysphoria. Friends, we have to use our common sense here. When you are talking about a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl or a 13, 14-year-old boy, whatever it is, this is, first of all, it's not a fully formed brain. This is not a human being who has that much experience in the world, but they're online. Whatever experiences they're not having in the world, they're having experiences way beyond, and we all know this is true, unless they're closely monitored, way beyond their ability to integrate it and understand it online. So puberty happens. I don't know a kid who goes through puberty and loves their body throughout the process. This does not happen. Part of puberty is awkwardness. Part of puberty is what's happening to my body. If you're a girl, why am I bleeding? If you're a boy, why is my voice squeaking? right? You start getting erections. You don't want erections when you have erections. When you're girls, you're getting your period when you don't want it. (laughs) It's just part of puberty. If you're an adult listening to this, you're laughing. It's just part of puberty. It's part of what we all went through. I don't like my boobs. You know, Jenny got nicer boobs. Kathy's got a better butt than I do. You know, John over there seems to have a, a larger penis or he's got broader shoulders or he shot up and he hit his growth spurt in ninth grade and I'm still, you know, five feet tall. I mean, this is puberty. This is what we all go through right? Now you couple the discomfort of puberty with an online presence saying, and this is very often what the messaging is, if you don't like the body that you're in, you might be trans. Friends, if you don't like the body that you're in, you also might be an adolescent. You also might be an adult. I don't know anybody who's like, I love every square inch of my body. That'd be great. We're all working toward that, right? But, you know, we go through a love-hate relationship with different parts of the body. That is extreme when you're in puberty because everything's changing so fast and it's awkward and everybody's changing at different rates. You're comparing yourself to other people. 
But online, the messaging is if you don't like the body that you're in, you might be trans. Not you are. I mean, I'm sure some people would say you are, but you might be. So what do you do when you're 13, 14, 15? I mean, there's this online presence. It's being celebrated. You come out. You have so many people circling around you. You wrap yourself in the rainbow flag. I'm not trying to make light of it. This is what happens. Look on Instagram. This is literally what's happening. The problem is you're now alienating your family because a lot of families don't know what to do with this. I don't think they're staunchly opposed. Maybe they are. I don't think a lot of families are just going to jump on the bus and say, great, let's put you on therapies. Let's put you on hormones. Most parents are actually taking the responsible approach and saying, what now? What is this? And then they've got to get online and do all this research. And then you've got the medical community who's saying, this is now assumed care. This is what standard care is. You are expected to say, I affirm you. Let's start you on the drugs. Let's get you your letter from the therapist and let's get you going with the hormone replacement therapy. What's going on underneath? I'm going to read you a couple of stories briefly later about a couple of people who detransitioned and what was really going on underneath. And I'm going to give you a little hint. The word is trauma, emotional dissatisfaction, emotional needs aren't being met. Sex isn't being talked about in a wholesome way. Bodily changes are not being acknowledged. We're not talking. The family isn't dealing with it. They're just assuming everybody's good, get on board, march along, aren't we a happy family? No, it's actually much more dynamic than that. And depending on the kid, the kid may need more depth around these issues. Depending on the kid, the kid may have more complicated emotional needs. So if we're not looking at that layer, and then what the kid is getting online and in school and from celebrities everywhere in the culture is, well, if you don't like the body you're in, it's okay if you're trans, then they're identifying this way. Now, is that the end of the world? No, no. I'm not using this microphone in this podcast to say that that's wrong. I'm using this microphone in this podcast to say that it might be misdirected. And if it is, the therapists are to blame because it's our job to listen to the client, listen for the issues and figure out what the root issues are. That was 38%. 23% reported that the experiences of discrimination made living as a trans person untenable. This is a very sad statistic because the real issues, number one, never get addressed. And second, the person is essentially living in hiding. They're being bullied. That's wrong. The real issues aren't being addressed. And then another 23% understood that they had been, in fact, struggling with sexual orientation issues rather than gender dysphoria. So this is very common. The individual is not trans. They are gay. Okay, so we have two options, automatic affirmation or another one. So let's break those down. Automatic affirmation, which is what a lot of people in this field will do, is I say okay to whatever someone says they are with no questions asked, period. Now, why do they do that? Well, a number of reasons. You know, therapists say things like the client is the expert on themselves, and they are. However, clients also come to us because they're having trouble knowing themselves. They're having trouble figuring themselves out. When someone comes in with a presentation of gender dysphoria, the automatic affirmation of okay is very interesting because we don't really do that about anything else. We really don't. Not when it comes to distress. You know, I've had clients questioning their sexuality. Am I gay? That's very common. People talk through that. And there's usually distress around it. Where there's distress, there's a question. Right? If a client comes in and says, I'm a homosexual, I've been out for a while, or I'm a homosexual, I'm not out, but I know that's what I am. I might say, okay, how long have you known you were gay? I mean, I still might ask questions. Why? Because I just want to know who this person is. What's the makeup of you? There's no judgment. I'm not pointing you in any direction. I just want to understand how you got where you are. Because how you got where you are is why you just walked into a therapist's office. It might be helpful to know those answers, right? Now, there is a risk. And the science and the research around this is very, very, very confusing and sometimes actually shoddy. But there seems to be a risk of suicidality, that if you don't affirm me and help me transition, that I'm going to kill myself. Therapists do respond quickly and decisively to these kinds of statements. I mean, that is the red alarm in an office. I might kill myself. I mean, that's going to get you in the door that day. You're going to get help. You might wind up in an ER, but we're going to respond and respond quickly. Okay. However, we are not necessarily controlled by those statements. 
Okay, if somebody came to me and said, if I don't divorce my spouse, I'm going to kill myself. If I can't move out of my parents' home, I'm going to kill myself. Do we respond? Yes. But we also explore. And we might make a contract with the client. Okay, make a contract with me that you're not going to rush into suicide. We will always ask, do you have a plan? Do you have weapons in the house? We're going to figure out if this person is safe. And if they're not, we're going to make sure they get safe. And that may involve a psychiatric facility. Okay, but if there is no plan, there's just what we would call suicidal ideation. I'm just thinking about it because I'm so miserable. I'm in so much pain. Well, then we're going to make a contract with them that if your thoughts get dark, you're either going to call me or call the suicide prevention hotline. And we're going to get all those resources in place so that this person doesn't have to go down that road. But we are going to explore And in the trans debate, there's no exploration. It's I have to get this person help or else they're going to kill themselves. We don't treat anything else that way. We just don't. So it's a little bizarre. When someone tells me they're having suicidal ideation and there is no plan, they're just thinking about it. That tells me they are in a world of pain. But that suicidal ideation doesn't need to rush us into treatment protocols for which there is no reverse. We can't go back in some of these cases. So what do we do? Well, the second option would be an exploratory approach. This is a quote from an article on treating gender dysphoria from Psychology Today. Quote, Lippmann notes that there's been a substantial change in the clinical approach to treating gender dysphoria in recent years. Previously, clinicians took a quote-unquote watchful waiting approach that involved extensive counseling, during which the client and the counselor carefully explored the implications of transitioning. There was also a thorough check for other psychological disorders that could be misinterpreted as gender dysphoria. Recently, however, most clinicians have adopted an affirmative approach that accepts the patient's claims of gender dysphoria at face value and encourages a rapid transition to the desired sex. Also known as the informed consent model, this is the approach that has been championed by trans activists and has been adopted by the American Academy of Pediatrics and Planned Parenthood. Littman's data suggests that the, in, that the increase in detransitioning cases may be due to not having thoroughly explored the roots of the reported gender dys- dysphoria or the implications of transitioning. In the end, it's clear that transitioning isn't a process that should be undertaken lightly. More clinicians are now recommending an exploratory approach in which the client and counselor carefully consider the source of the gender dysphoria as well as the implications of transitioning. The goal is not to convince patients not to transition, but rather to help them gain the personal insight they need to make informed decisions, end quote. Can I get a shout out for some good old fashioned psychotherapy? (laughs) Hello? Hello? This is what we do. We're therapists. We explore. We ask questions. So let's talk about the organic process of psychotherapy. Okay, good old-fashioned chicken soup psychotherapy. Not the trends, not even cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, I wouldn't even put that in the category of psychotherapy. It's cognitive behavioral therapy. Psychotherapy, where you're exploring the psyche. You're looking at the whole person, not just their thoughts and behaviors. You're looking at their trauma, their past, their emotions, their coping mechanisms, their primary relationships, their attachment style. Okay, the whole person. Ready? Chicken soup. Psychotherapy. Here we go. We are questioning in order to understand, not necessarily to challenge. And this is really important. I've worked with trans clients. My job is not to steer them in any direction. That is not my job. My job is to help them understand themselves. And I'm going to say more about that later. But that's the first work of a psychotherapist, questioning in order to understand. What are we trying to understand? The root causes of the distress. When did the symptoms appear? Why did they appear? Are they connected to coping mechanisms? Do you have coping mechanisms that are so unhealthy that they're causing you mental and emotional distress? Probably. Because that's what coping mechanisms do. But why did you develop them? Because you were in a situation where you had no better tools. Do you see? So we're unpacking what's the root. We're going to ask things like, who are you or who were you outside of the onset of these symptoms? Now, this is very important. 
What is your identity outside of this mental distress? You know, there's a theory of therapy or really a style of doing therapy is what it is now called narrative therapy. Narrative therapy, and I love narrative therapy, it grew out of a real sense of humanity, okay? And here's how it works. The idea is that you are not your symptoms. You are a human being, and the symptoms came to you. They arrived in your life. Narrative therapy is more about seeing ourselves as part of a story rather than embodying the problems that we feel we have. There's a you before this, there's a you in the midst of this, and there's going to be a you after this. You're sort of living a narrative story. Now, why is this important? Because pain can become so all-consuming that we identify with our symptoms. I am depressed versus I'm experiencing depression. Do you hear the difference? It's subtle, but it's not. It separates the client. It separates us from our issues. So if I'm talking to someone who has gender dysphoria, I'm not going to say you are trans. I might say, when did the dysphoria start for you? When are you aware that the pain of feeling like you were in the wrong body started for you? Do you hear the difference? There's a you here that we're trying to understand. The symptoms are not who you are. The goal of psychotherapy is the development of self-knowledge, self-understanding, and self-compassion. You know, we start looking at ourselves through a different light. We're understanding ourselves, who we are, why we do the things we do, why we developed the behaviors we have. There's more compassion there. How did my coping mechanisms serve me? That's a great question because they did and they do. We're starting to understand our motives. And this is really, really, really hard work. Why? Because we don't typically want to own why we do what we do. Why? Because a lot of our motives are mixed. We want to see ourselves as being very purely motivated. But very few people are. And no one is all the time. No one. I'm sorry. If you're listening to this and you think you're just pure as the wind-driven snow, I'm here to tell you, you need to do some shadow work. You are not. You are trying to meet your needs through other people sometimes. You are. That's how the human experience is. But we have to understand this through psychotherapy. Why did I really choose what I chose? You know, I've worked with people who might get to a certain point in their psychotherapy and they say, you know, I think my entire adult life, I've constructed everything around trying not to be my dad. That's a big realization because then you have to ask yourself, how many decisions that I've made in my life were really about who I am as a person and how many decisions did I make in my life so that I would be the anti of whatever parent I wanted to be the anti of? We deal with motives in psychotherapy. I'm going to tell a story about a conversation I had once with um, a trans man, and that's a female to man, so born biological female and then transitioned to a man. And we were sitting at a dinner party kind of sitting around a table and we got to talking and Will is a delightfully warm, available, intelligent person. PhD does really, really complicated research at one of the top institutions in this nation. And so Will and I were chatting and, you know, there was enough grace and transparency to really talk about the trans experience. And so I'm hearing a story about self-hatred. I just, I hated my breasts. I hated my body. I hated my mother. On and on and on. And I'm hearing this theme of hatred. And then I finally said, Will, did you ever explore your hatred toward your mother? Or did you ever look at your hatred toward yourself? And I'll never forget the look on the face there. It was just blank. And at this point, of course, I'm I'm already a licensed therapist. And my heart just sank. And I thought, ah, what a missed opportunity. Because you made major life decisions, huge bodily life, identity, social, everything. Every layer was affected. Huge life decisions on hate. Not a great basis for decision making. I didn't say any of that, but not a great basis for decision making. You know, I sounded like this toy I had as a kid. This is a total sidebar. When I was a little kid, I don't know why we had this toy. I should find it online and buy it for myself just as a joke. It was an owl. And the owl was Sigmund Freud. And you pull the cord. And then as the cord goes back in, you know, it was the 80s. Remember those toys? You pull the cord and the cord goes back in. And then the, the little toy would speak. And it would it would say in the voice of Sigmund Freud in this German accent or Austrian, wherever he was from, Austria, he would say, um, lie down on the couch. Why do you hate your mother? <laughs> 
this little owl toy. See, I knew I was going to be a therapist. I loved that toy. So here I am at this dinner party looking at this, you know, human being, this amazing person. I really have so much respect for Will. But looking at this person, why do you hate your mother? Anyway, okay, so back to it. So in psychotherapy, we're trying to get those answers, right? We're trying to figure out why did you make the choices you made? Why did you marry who you married? Why did you decide to have kids? To challenge it? No, to understand it with the goal of self-knowledge. And through that, we develop self-regard. We understand ourselves. Where do we find ourselves? Very often in different outcomes. Now this gives us a choice. One of the things that I noticed as I've studied both the trans community and the detrans community. And again, detransitioners right now are about 1% to 8% of people who transition. So it's a small amount, but I still think they're worth listening to. Why? Because they always blame their therapists. They always blame their mental health professionals. It's the people who wrote off on the letter, yes, you have dysphoria, go get this treatment. Friends, as therapists, I believe we owe it to our clients, their families, parents, and society at large to be reasonable and an informed voice on this issue and rushing to affirm when there are people who have been permanently harmed by these medical treatments, for me, it should stop us dead in our tracks and cause us to slow down and do real psychotherapy with this population. They deserve it. Our first ethical obligation is do no harm, period, end of story. I cannot look at someone and refer them for medical treatment, not having spent longer than an hour with this person, knowing that it's permanent, knowing that it's going to permanently change their body, their soul, their psyche. We live in our bodies. You can't disintegrate that. I can't do that and then say I'm doing no harm. What does it look like if we apply the process of good old fashioned psychotherapy to gender dysphoria? It's not. It's not rocket science. We would be asking questions like, when did the dysphoric feeling start? How old were you? Where do you feel that in your body? Which body parts are you dysphoric about? Why? What feelings come up in you? Let's name them, right? Let's create our emotional vocabulary. Let's name the feelings that come up in you when you experience this dysphoria. What do you associate with these body parts? You know, this is an interesting question because with this question, we're coming into an understanding of their symbolism of masculinity and femininity. And this is hugely important. I'm going to say more about that later when I talk about Carl Jung. But what do we associate with breasts? What do you associate with your penis, with your vulva, with your testicles? What do you associate with these body parts? How do they make you feel? What part of you feels like the other gender? Now, this is an important question because it deals with the essence of the self. What part of us tells us what gender we are? This is not an easy question to answer. Is it the mind, the soul, the psyche? We don't know. There's no structure in the brain that says what gender we are. We're just born with the chromosomes we have and the genitalia that that creates. So we have to ask ourselves, If I think I'm a woman, I'm a biological male, but I believe I'm a woman, what do I imagine it feels like to be a woman? And vice versa, what do I imagine it feels like to be a man? These are good questions. We might ask, what relationships in your life have been important in understanding gender stereotypes? What is a man to you? What is a woman? Who are these archetypes in your life? Now, why are these binary stereotypes important? Because when people transition, they're choosing hormones and surgery to try and create the appearance of the stereotypical gender presentation of the other gender. What does that mean? It means female to males, biological females who are trans men, they want to become men. Okay. And in the trans community, they would say, we are already men. We just want to change our appearance to match what we feel. Okay. Let's use that language. That means you want deeper voices, shorter haircuts, broad shoulders, no breasts, facial hair, less fat, bigger muscles. Why? Because these are stereotypical male physical attributes. And the converse is true. Male to female, you want breasts, different fat distribution around your hips. You want curves. You want feminized facial features. You want the features smoothed out. You want all the hair taken off your face. You want longer nails, makeup, hair, right? 
we're trying to appropriate the stereotypical presentation of the other gender. That's what we're trying to do when we're transitioning, as far as appearance goes. Who's an example of that? If you follow or know of Dylan Mulvaney. He is famous right now, just had an interview at the White House with the President of the United States. And his presentation as a woman could not be more of a caricature of being a female. Acts a bit ditzy, bows in the hair, bows around the neck, lots of pink, lots of purple, high heels, prancing around. Now, I will tell you, sidebar, as a woman, I find that representation of womanhood so off base, so not what I and the women I know in my life experience as womanhood, but that is a male's imagining of what it is to be a female. It's like femininity, bubblegum pink on cocaine. Dylan Mulvaney refers to the vagina of a woman as a Barbie pouch. Need I say more? Conversely, Elliot Page, formerly Ellen, Elliot Page is on the cover of Esquire magazine. And it's, I think the headline is like euphoria as opposed to dysphoria, right? Euphoria. And very male looking. Okay, six pack, broad shoulders, short hair, looks very manly, looks very masculine. So I went ahead and I read the article. Quote, this is how Elliot Page describes the dysphoria. Quote, a constant sensation to flee from my body, this never ending sensation of anxiety and nervousness and wanting out, end quote. Okay, so if you're affirming, you're going to go, okay, well, you're dysphoric, you should have surgery and take hormones. Period. End of story. Let's get you going. The psychotherapeutic approach, the exploratory approach. Well, when did the anxiety you felt about being in your body begin? Where do you experience it? Where in the body does the dysphoria sit? And I would be exploring that emotion. What does it feel like? What does it look like? How big is it? This is called somatic work. What part of your body is telling you that you're anxious? I might say, you know, nervousness is a fear response. Are you aware of what you might be afraid of? Where do you feel that fear in your body? And from there we go. Now we're getting to some root emotions, some humanity. This isn't about being dysphoric or not. These are human emotions we can deal with, we can talk about, we can look at where they're coming from. We might also ask about masculine and feminine influences. Who's the most influential, good or bad, male or female in your life? You know, a while ago, I did an episode called The Inner Dialogue, and I talked about conversing with body parts, right? Conversing with mental illness, talking to your depression, listening to your anxiety. We can absolutely do that with body parts. You know, I worked with one client who was interested in top surgery, and I said, I want you to write a goodbye letter to your breasts. And we kind of had a good laugh about it because I was like, you know, what did they do? They just grew where they were supposed to grow according to your DNA. But, you know, you want them gone. So at least give them a proper send off. Let's write them a goodbye letter. okay? And it was very interesting what came out. Putting feelings into words is one of the most powerful tools of psychotherapy. It's why talk therapy works, because it gives us a conscious experience of our unconscious self. We have to draw from the unconscious and the subconscious and really struggle to put those deep, complex feelings and images into words. And in doing that, we find layers of meaning that we reveal to ourselves. We can talk to all the parts of the body, the part that wants to transition, the part that's afraid to transition, the part that's angry about being born in the wrong body, the part that unconditionally loves the self, the part that wishes they could unconditionally love the self. You know, holistic psychotherapy, we talk about the mind, the body, and the spirit, right? Mind, body, soul, heart, all these parts of the self. But when you really move into some of these places, you're you're talking about the division in the body, the division in the mind, the division in the soul, the division in the heart. All of those parts are not always integrated together. So what we want to do is get a dialogue going. What's going on inside? Holistic psychotherapy. Integration involves cooperation, respect, and understanding for all parts of the self. We would have to take a look at the exploration of social influences. Lisa Littman's work, again, she coined the phrase rapid onset gender dysphoria. It spikes coincidentally with the spike in social media usage. The percentage of mostly girls 
that report gender dysphoria, rapid onset presentation is it's a 4,400% spike. 4,400%. There is literally not any presentation of any mental or emotional distress or situation, whatever you want to call it, there is literally no other occurrence in anywhere of the literature across any part of recorded human history that shows a 44% spike in anything. That number is just like, it's mind-blowing. 4,400%. spike. And it correlates almost exactly on a graph with social media. Is it causational? We don't know. But we... We'd be idiots not to think it was on some level. But is it correlational? Oh, yeah. So we have to look at social influences, social media. Now, the trans community feels unfairly explained away. And I understand that. Oh, it's just social media. It's a a social contagion. It's a social craze. That's their complaint. I hear that. But the stats are the stats. So in this kind of exploratory setting, we would have an honest dialogue about social media usage, influences, whose accounts do you follow, what emotional needs are being met, who feels like they're speaking directly to you. Then we'd have to explore family dysfunction. What emotional needs are not being met in the family unit? Then we have to look at trauma. And this is the big one. I told you I was going to mention a couple of different stories. I'll put links to their stories and their YouTube channels in the show notes. But Helena was a female to male transgender person who detransitioned. And she talks extensively about being part of a family of, quote, we don't talk about it. How do you process anything if you're in a family that doesn't deal with distress, that can't resolve conflict, that can't get into it with each other? Isaac was a male to female, talks extensively on his YouTube channel. By the way, sidebar, this guy is brilliant. I don't know what he's going to do with his life. He's very young, but he is absolutely brilliant. But he talks quite a bit about sexual trauma, went unexplored. He actually has a segment on his YouTube channel where he calls his therapist and confronts her. And it is heartbreaking because she basically takes responsibility for nothing. Nothing. And he's like, how could you have sent me for transition therapy knowing I had all of this trauma in my background? You never treated that. You just treated the gender dysphoria. It's heartbreaking. But we would have to deal with trauma. We would have to look at possibly unaddressed homosexuality. You know, the combination of all of these things is very, very important. Because the D-trans population commonly points to unresolved and unexplored trauma and unaddressed homosexuality. The combination of that and social media influences causes them to interpret their experienced pain as gender dysphoria. And then, of course, then you have the desire to transition because that's what everyone is telling you you should do. You shouldn't explore it. You should transition. But I'm here to say today, no, we should explore it first. There is no risk to exploration. Again, if suicidality is present, if suicidality is if you're if you're having suicidal ideation, we address it. We form a contract with the client that they're going to stay alive to do this work. We're going to get to the core issues one way or another. I'm going to make sure you feel better at the end of this. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure you feel better. If that is by transitioning, let's get there through exploration, not affirmation. It's the same outcome. So if you explore it in psychotherapy, rigorous, honest psychotherapy, and you still want to transition on the other side of that, at least you do so with a significantly lessened chance of regret. You're walking in eyes eyes wide open. That's a powerful place from which to make that kind of a move. But if you do it and you realize that other deeper issues are at play that you interpreted as gender dysphoria, you can go on to address and heal those things and not have to make any of those changes to your body that are irreversible. The goal here is self-acceptance either way. Now, there are some who would say, you've got to love the body that you're in, period. And then the gender dysphoric and the trans community would say, I can't. I'm here to say, give psychotherapy a chance. As clinicians, we have to double down on our own psychotherapeutic processes and make sure that we are doing no harm. All right, I'm going to finish up today. We're going to go a little bit long, but I'm going to finish up today with a little bit of Jungian psychotherapy because this to me is a beautiful other option. 
Okay. When I was researching transgenderism, and I've been researching and reading books and reading articles and studying this for years now. When I was researching, the the, the thing that kept kind of nagging me, it was like a, a little, you know, like a little catch in my chest, like I couldn't get past it, was that there was a lot of codifying the self, the identity of the self around one gender presentation to the exclusion of the other. What do I mean? I want to be a trans man. So everything about me is going to be masculine and I'm going to deepen my voice, broad on my shoulders, grow facial hair, the whole thing. And then I'm rejecting femininity. And then the converse is true. If I'm becoming a trans woman, I am growing my hair out, getting breast implants, blah, 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 right? becoming the appearance to try and match the outside to the inside, the whole thing. But I'm rejecting masculinity. You know, Carl Jung was a brilliant, brilliant psychiatrist and psychotherapist. He coined two phrases, anima and animus. And what they really are is a false binary. So let me unpack this a little bit. Anima is the feminine side, and he was studying men. It was the feminine side of men. And he believed that a lot of the angst, the anxiety that men were experiencing is because they weren't in touch with both anima and animus. Anima is the feminine side. It is soft, nourishing, empathic, loving. Animus is the more masculine traits, decisive, strong, powerful, assertive, aggressive, okay? And what Jung pointed out was that in men, again, he's studying men, but this is true of men and women, there is both anima and animus, masculine and feminine, and there are levels of development. So it's not just that we have masculine and feminine traits. It goes much deeper than that. We are actually in a process, a robust, dynamic process of evolving into the masculine and the feminine all the time. So the integration and the maturation of the masculine and the feminine within us is the goal. So there's no need to codify your identity around one or the other. You can actually be, wait for it, fluid. Fluid. You don't need to conform to norms as far as dress or appearance goes. You can be fluid. Men, you can wear pink. You can put a bow around your neck. It's called a bow tie. I guess you could put it in your hair. Why not? Women, break out your biker boots, right? Now, again, oh, Vanessa, that's so stereotypical. But this is literally what we're talking about when we're talking about transitioning. You are trying to acquire the stereotypical presentation of the other gender. You don't have to. You hold both within you already. And if you codify around one or the other to the exclusion of the other traits, it creates an imbalance. We don't need to grasp one identity to the exclusion of the other. One of my favorite quotes by Walt Whitman, you've heard me say it before, I contain multitudes. We can contain both masculine and feminine traits and attributes and blend them into one identity without having to attempt to change our biological sex, which is impossible. You cannot change your biological sex. You can't. You can change your appearance. You can change certain characteristics that you have. You can grow breasts. You can deepen your voice. That doesn't change your biological sex. That's impossible. Another example from ancient wisdom, yin and yang. Yin and yang are defined as opposite but interconnected forces. Very often, the yin and the yang symbols, the yin and the yang energy is represented as male and female. We're standing too far apart in this male and female category. And honestly, the transgender transitioning community is not helping that. They're pushing it further apart. You're a man. You're way over here. Well, you look like this. You have short hair, blah, blah. You're a woman. You're way over. No, 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 no. You can stand in the wholeness of yourself. Yin is a symbol of the earth, femaleness, darkness, passivity, and absorption. It's kind of sexy, isn't it? It's present in even numbers in Chinese spirituality. In valleys and streams, there's movement. It's represented by the tiger, the color orange. It's a broken line. Yang is conceived of as heaven, maleness, light, activity, and penetration. Gee, I wonder why. It's present in odd numbers in the mountains. It's represented by the dragon, the color blue, and an unbroken line. The two are both said to proceed from the great ultimate. Their interplay on one another, as one increases and the other decreases, it's a dance. 
It's the description of the actual process of the universe and all that is in it. My friends, if you are cisgendered, if you are trans, whatever you think you are, you hold all of that within you. It is the balance and the dance within the self. Regardless of how you identify, if you have unhealed trauma, unresolved relational issues, I don't care if you transition now, tomorrow, or you did five years ago, they are not going to go away by transitioning. They're not. What you will probably experience, I'm speaking to the trans community, is a relief from the dysphoria. But what if the dysphoria is not due to the fact that you were born in the wrong body, but because you have unresolved issues that were interpreted that way? I'm just saying what if. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm saying what if. And if that's the case, then you deserve good psychotherapy. You deserve to explore this. Find a therapist who will explore. If you're on the fence, if you're thinking about transitioning, if you've been experiencing dysphoria, first let me say, I'm with you. My heart goes out to you. I don't want you to be in that pain. Before you start transitioning, get yourself into the office of a therapist who's going to answer a lot of these questions with you. Then, if you decide to transition, you will have so much self-knowledge, you will be so concrete in your decisiveness about this. Because once you do, there is no going back, not bodily. There is going back mentally. You can detransition. It's hard. The vitriol and the hatred that detransitioners get from the trans community is real. And the trans community would say, you know what? So what? The vitriol and the hate that we get from everybody else is real. And you know what? It is. And that's wrong. All of it's wrong. But if you want to detransition, you can. And if you want to heal the wounds that presented themselves as dysphoria, you can. No good decision in your life flows from self-hate. Self-hate is problematic, not diagnostic. I'm going to say that again. Please hear me. Self-hate is problematic. It needs to be worked on and resolved. It's not diagnostic, meaning, oh, you hate yourself, then you have gender dysphoria. You hate your body, you have gender dysphoria. Go do that. No. No good decision flows from self-hate. But we fear self-knowledge. Why? Because we can't unlearn what we learn. Once we see ourselves, we have to construct our lives around what we see. You can't unlearn it. You can't unsee it. Social contracts, once someone comes out as trans, social contracts are made. And the detrans community is roundly hated and openly criticized. So changing your mind has real social consequences, becoming trans or detransitioning. I'm here to tell you, you can handle it. You will find a community of support. So if you identify as trans and this podcast got you thinking, you owe it to yourself to answer these questions honestly. You'll make a better decision in the long run with more knowledge, not less. And if you can't find someone, and I mean this, if you cannot find someone who will do this kind of work with you, reach out to me, send me an email, the podcast at vanessalondino.com, and I will make it my goal to find you a therapist in your area because I can't practice outside of Tennessee. I will make it my goal to find a therapist in your area and I will not fail you. I will find you someone who will answer these questions with you. But I do not believe that the answer is to rush into treatment for anything, not medical treatment. First, explore. This is presenting itself on the inside. It's part of your mind. It's part of your self-concept. Psychotherapy is the right first line of intervention. It takes tremendous courage to live authentically. Whatever that means for us, it's courage, pure courage, that allows us to ask and face the answers that are within us. It's the greatest courage we can possess as human beings. And then our self-love is real love because it's based on the courageous process of knowing who we are and choosing to love who that person is. You know, this quote, Veronica Tugaleva, that's a mouthful. It's a nice name. To know yourself, you must sacrifice the illusion that you already do. You know, in Eastern spirituality, we talk about having beginner's mind. We're always at the beginning of knowing ourselves. We need to say, this is what I think I know about myself. This is who I think I am, but I'm always learning. All right, let's pause there. I know today was a lot. 
please share this. Share this with a mental health professional in your life. Share this with someone who you know is affected by transgenderism, which is all of us. It's all of us. We have to open our minds, open our hearts, and most importantly, open our arms to anyone who is experiencing gender dysphoria and start the work of understanding it. We can't help what we don't understand. You may say, but Vanessa, you're a cisgendered woman. You'll never get it. We're listening. I may not know what gender dysphoria is because I've never experienced it in my body. And that is the truth. But I know what psychotherapy is. And I know what that path looks like. We're listening. A lot of us are listening. If you like this episode, share it. Thanks for hanging in there with me. I know we went a little over today. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Vanessa the Therapist. Like I said, you can email me, the podcast at vanessalandino.com. Keep putting reviews on the toolbox on Amazon. Please, if you bought it on Amazon, please review the book. I have two. <laughs> I have two five-star reviews, so I'm going to take that as a good sign. If you liked it, please do consider leaving a review. If you like this podcast, share it, leave a review, and remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. I think today this means more than it ever has before. I care. I'm listening. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Landino and you just listened to the Vanessa Landino podcast. <laughs>